वेलकम टू सिंटॉक द सिंटॉक इज अराउंड द टेबल टुडे डिस्कस द आइसोलेटेड क्वांटम वर्ल्ड्स विल थिंक अबाउट क्वांटम सिस्टम्स एंड वेदर दे आर ट्रूली आइसोलेटेड फ्रॉम द मैनिफेस्ट वर्ल्ड अराउंड अस व्हाट डज इट मीन टू बी आइसोलेटेड इज द क्लासिकल वर्ल्ड अ लिमिट केस ऑफ द क्वांटम what does it mean for a system to have properties can quantum states be changed from the outside is the quantum world truly strange or we do not know how to interpret it yet what is macroscopicness how are cubes made is subject object distinction tenable are we all objects and what is the long term future of our understanding of quantum systems and therefore quantum computing and other offshoots we are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today professor anupam garg he is a professor of physics and astronomy at northwestern university in the us he is a theoretical physicist with interests in condensed matter physics magnetism and quantum mechanics Dr. Tarun Menon he is a philosopher of science and is currently at TIS in Mumbai. He is primarily interested in issues relating to causation and chance in both physics and social sciences. And Dr. Rajamani Vijay Raghavan he is a quantum physicist and works with engineered quantum systems for both applied and fundamental problems. He is from TIFR in Mumbai. So Anupam why don't we set the ball rolling with you um maybe at a general place um of what picture do you form in your mind you've done this for a while um of the of the quantum world of the really tiny microscopic realm how isolated is it uh, to from the world that we see around us how does it even pose that question what's the right question to pose what's the best way to uh, begin to understand that understand that problem well i don't uh, i think the quantum world is becoming more and more fascinating and more and more weird at the same time and that you way, mean for physicists like you well for for physicists like me certainly but uh, eventually for everyone <laughs> because uh, we are uh, now investigating systems uh that the founders of quantum mechanics would uh, never have imagined and uh, things that behave quantum mechanically in realms that i'm certain they would not have thought of and well, what do you have in mind so the kind of things that uh, we just studies for example are are truly fascinating that uh, there these are quantum systems that uh, systems that were not at one time there was even a big debate as to whether they were quantum at all quantum at all right and uh, they are quantum they are uh, the kind of the the degrees of freedom that behave in in quantum mechanical ways are are very surprising and uh, so i think that's sort of one part of the of what i think about in terms of quantum mechanics and and certainly of course quantum mechanics applies to things that are that everyone would agree are microscopic like atoms and 
and molecules and so on, but then they also apply, quantum mechanics also seems to apply to some surprising systems. And these are the ones that I was first, that I, so I'm giving my answer backwards as it were. That's that, fine. <laughs> that it's the, these are the things, so the kinds of things that Vijay studies, for example, are, are also subject to laws of quantum mechanics. And these are not manifestly microscopic on the face of it. Would you, what are these? What are you referring you agree to? with that, Vijay? Or? What, is, uh, what is Anupam referring to? Yeah, Vijay? so what Anupam is referring to the fact that, you know, when we normally think about quantum mechanics, and in some sense, the origin of quantum mechanics was also for explaining these so-called microscopic systems, actually, particles of light and then atoms and molecules. Uh, but the kind of systems I'm working on don't are not composed of a single atom or even a few atoms for that matter. They're actually composed of millions of atoms, but they collectively behave as Quantum if- Quantum mechanically. Uh, they are one atom and have properties which can be explained by quantum mechanics. And they show that. And this was something which was unthinkable, I think, at the time of the foundation of quantum mechanics. Um, another specific point is got to do with uh, applying quantum mechanics to actually individual systems. And I think the founders of quantum mechanics never thought that you would ever talk about doing experiments on a single atom, whether it is real or artificial, like in our case, uh, and only thought about applying them to collections of atoms. And there, you know, you get some kind of average behavior and quantum mechanics could still predict that. I mean, I believe Schrodinger himself said that, you know, if you apply quantum mechanics to a single atom, then obviously you're going to get nonsensical result or something to that effect. Um, so <laughs> they, that. they, did not, you know, they didn't think that this was ever going to be possible. But of course, now in the last several decades, uh, more and more systems, uh, both uh, from the point of view of single truly macroscopic systems like atoms and collective degrees of freedom like in the system I study, which are basically electrical oscillators, uh, that they can also show quantum mechanical effects under the right condition. So how large are these electrical oscillators? So the ones I make in my uh, lab usually, you can see them with your naked eye. They're about a millimeter in size. Uh, you can see them with your eye. Uh, of course, it has one essential component, which is a lot smaller and you cannot see it. But the overall object which behaves like uh, an artificial atom is about a millimeter in size. And it's mostly aluminum. So, so what? how does one think of this isolation question there. How is that small part? What is it? What do you call that? So this is basically, uh, I mean, the small part in the oscillator I'm talking about is called the Josephson junction. But actually right. that is not the the element which is bringing the quantumness to the system. It's as you mentioned, it's got to do with how you are uh, placing this system in connection with its environment. Right. And um, to talk about, uh, you know, why a collective degree of freedom here is, is relevant is like saying that, you know, if you have a, an oscillating pendulum, just the angle the pendulum makes is sufficient to describe the full motion of the pendulum. Right. Whereas the pendulum itself is composed of, you know, millions of millions atoms of which atoms, are doing so their own things, thing. All kinds of but things that happening. is not the relevant thing. And most importantly, if you design the system correctly, those additional degrees of freedom don't couple or they don't interact with the relevant degree of freedom where you're seeing the quantum mechanical effects, which, for example, if you take a, a pendulum, and I bring that up because our electrical oscillators can be thought of as pendulum-type oscillators, and you just need one degree of freedom to describe their effective motion, and it's that degree of uh, freedom which gives rise to the quantum mechanical effects. So is there uh, is there an ontological kind of status to this quantum system at all, or is it just the way it is configured with uh, with its environment? 
um like for example if you if you if you say just an electron or a photon or you know some of the subatomic particles you're going in that direction not the kind of things you study in your lab vijay are they quantum mechanical objects are they quantum objects or no or does it have to do with uh, you know what i mean i, I mean, think it's so, the ontology so, question so, so, I so would, I'll, I'll go to you tarun my so so i mean conceptually i think the cleanest way to think about this is is that there there isn't some distinct class of objects or processes or behaviors that one should think of as quantum right i think if the world is a unified physical system then in some sense everything is quantum there's there's an idea of a specific kind of behavior being quantum behavior seeing superpositions interference that kind of thing we usually associate with quantum behavior. so there's quantum behavior there are no quantum objects well um i mean i i, I think this is a, a difficult question to answer this, so i i think it's entirely possible to understand quantum mechanics at, at, uh, in terms of objects behaving in certain ways one might need to reconfigure how one thinks about properties so there's a traditional conception of objects one has where you have objects with kind of persistent properties uh and uh, uh that can be kind of causally and informationally isolated these objects that can be thought of as having these intrinsic properties all on their own uh that might break down in certain cases when we think about quantum phenomena um uh there might also be a question about what a fundamental ontology should be right uh uh and is it is the world fundamentally made up of particles which is how we've traditionally thought about it going back at least to newton or uh is there this more abstract entity uh which at least in non relativistic quantum mechanics one could think of as a wave function which is a more some kind of more fundamental part of the ontological furniture than the actual particles are a kind of emergent and then phenomenon. when you observe it it becomes a particle then there's a collapse or something that happens is the world made up of particles um, um that is them's fighting words uh, yeah would, i mean if you said that to some people it would uh, provoke a fight yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh and i think that's my way of saying that it's not I one can't. That's not a simple yes. Is no this question. a nonsensical question? No, not, this question cannot be answered. Is it? Is it both wave and particle? Well, that's that's like, the whole issue. Let's make this complex. That's so, the whole issue. Yeah. That is the whole issue. That is that the whole notion of what what exactly is a particle? What is a wave? And uh, uh, is everything uh, quantum mechanical field theory? So. Uh, uh, you know so the, the, this really has to do with whether the, the, this sort of then gets into questions like the nature of reality whether uh, we we sort of tend to think that the objects that we are looking at in this room are are real right there's this famous story of uh, of uh, i and i think tarun can tell me if my history or my uh, anecdote is wrong of of burton russell uh, at the thesis defense of wittgenstein getting into a heated argument about whether or not there was a rhinoceros in the room and the the great man was actually then reduced to looking under the tables and the chairs and bending down to prove that there was not a rhinoceros in the room right and so uh, so you know so obviously this when you when you say this is the whole sort of driving uh impulse behind this question so the so, other way to ask a related question which will hopefully throw some light on that yeah. is so where is quantum behavior found yeah so that's exactly the thing right so this is where 
So when 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 we see tables and chairs and rhinoceri or rhinoceroses, right. uh, they have definite properties, right? We we sort of we we think of them as 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 objects. There's some up cohere. Yeah, is, there's right? an we, identity. We would not, I no one would would dispute that we are all sitting on four chairs in this room right now, right? That's uh, that sounds like a a very obvious thing to state and and clearly true. But somehow it starts mm. from a very non-obvious electron, or yes, exactly. Or so this, these 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 obvious and innocuous observations that we are so used to making in the macroscopic world around us, they don't hold in the microscopic world. So how does so, one go? How does one make that journey uh, from the smeared electron, you, smeared atom to? I would love to know how the answer <laughs> to that question. <laughs> no, this is a this is I think this is a big open. Question. I'm sure there's a demand. Is, at least, is, at least forty fifty big, people big, in the big, world want to know that. No, no, yeah. big open. This is a big open question. You've you've touched on a very important question and a big open question. But what what yeah, have philosophers was, said to this question? Well, they've said a number of things. Uh, both philosophers and what looks promising on the you. foundations of physics is a number of different interpretations of quantum mechanics. How one thinks about the basic ontological structure of quantum mechanics. But I think the 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 question, uh, the way you had framed it, so what I was trying to get at earlier when I said that in some sense all behavior is quantum behavior is that uh, there's this question, there seems to be this deep puzzle about the microscopic world where you say there's this odd quantum behavior in the microscopic world. But I think the more we understand quantum mechanics, the really odd behavior is at the macroscopic level. Why it is that the macroscopic world isn't quantum in the same way the microscopic world is where so and and so the interesting question i think is how to understand the kind of determinate behavior that uh, anupam was talking about how to understand that as quantum behavior uh, right um, and and th that's so what happens why is there that loss of quantum information what is your take on this uh, so um, i think before i answer this specific question i just wanted to uh, say that there are actually a few different aspects of quantum mechanics which often tend to get mixed up. Mm -hmm. um, as Tarun was saying that, you know, we normally associate quantum behavior to things like superposition or entanglement, which we don't see in our day-to-day -day life. So any object which shows such behavior, we can classify them as a quantum object. You know, that's one way of saying it's a quantum object. Um, then there is a question of when does such quantum behavior like superposition and entanglement stop happening as you slowly move towards uh, right. the macroscopic world, you know, or which basically, you know, in the simplest sense, it's just that you start with one atom and then you slowly put together many atoms to form a molecule, many, many molecules yeah, when to form do few become a many cell. In, yeah. And, and as, as Anupam said, this is an open question. Um, there is also a school of thought which says that actually it doesn't matter. You can draw that line anywhere and nothing about how you will understand the world or interpret uh, experiments will change. That distinction is not helpful for any of what you do. Yeah. In some sense, no, yes. That, that's correct. But and there is, of course, all the physics which uh, Anupam does, you know, condensed matter physics, uh, all of your electronics, everything working in this studio is happening because quantum mechanics works. Yeah. The fundamental unit of all of this electronics is the transistor. Yeah. And the transistor works because semiconductor physics has to be explained yeah, by quantum. Yeah, junction, diode, this, that, whatever. And, yeah. you know, and you know how to compute it, and that's why you know how a transistor works. Uh, and, you know, this is not using these superposition and entanglement type of properties, but it's just using quantum mechanics to compute how this device would function. And that works and it's it's been one of the biggest successes in terms of uh, the, a, a theory which can be tested experimentally to find properties. So these three are slightly uh, uh, distinct. And this making a jump between uh, the microscopic world and the macroscopic world is an open question. 
And a lot of people now believe that it's really just a question which might help us sleep better at night because it might not actually make a real difference in how we do things uh, or how we might do things in the future. So, I mean, this is sort of often what is called the shut up and calculate attitude. And I think I sort of belong to that um, category. But what is uh, exciting is that because I also work in this area of quantum computing, there we are trying to really control a collection of these objects. And which naturally means that at some point we have to address the question, you know, is this, is this collection of objects going to become too big to be able to describe uh, in the simple uh, quantum Will it remain equations. quantum mechanical after it becomes too big? Will it show those properties of superposition and entanglement? And there, you know, the standard answer is that, you know, decoherence will set in at certain rate and all the challenge is for you to control that decoherence. What's the, what, what are the theoretical things there? Is there is there a certain size, a certain number of qubits, a certain number no. of atoms? So oh. this is completely dependent A on the physical system. Sure. And there is no clear formula which says that, okay, this is where you draw the line. But what is well known... You think there won't be or there isn't? It's not yet found? Oh. No, I think that there won't be at least in the current framework of quantum mechanics because the particular physical system will start to determine how quickly your standard description of the system you are analyzing is going to remain accurate. So the problem people say here is that basically once the system becomes too large, you just can't write the equations of quantum correctly because you just don't know the system sufficiently well. And so, maybe yeah. maybe Anupam, you can comment on that. So if I could jump in. So I think yeah. this, this line of uh, discussion that uh, Vijay has begun on quantum computing and decoherence is fascinating, but we should come back to it. Uh, and not lose the thread of the uh, the, the, the philosopher thing, the, here. The thing that Darun. we were talking about earlier. That I, I think there's this sort of two things to discuss over here. That that so sort of quantum mechanics has come up with a way. So first of all, uh, to just rephrase what Tarun was saying, I would say that everything is quantum in the sense that the our present theory of quantum mechanics admits of no limitations. Right. So in principle, it is supposed to be able to describe a single atom, a molecule, collections of atoms, and that's in principle. So, so the classical world, as we call it, yes, is, is, is also is, is, is also is describable by quantum mechanics. Yeah. In fact, it's no. a requirement yes. that the theory does that. Yeah, yeah, so that's correct. But the thing is that, uh, so then why do we make a distinction between quantum mechanics and classical mechanics? Because there are certain manifestations of this quantum behavior that we only see at the microscopic level. And of course, we are now beginning to see at more interesting levels, such as the, the qubits and superconducting cavities and uh, Joseph junctions that uh, that Vijay and uh, other people study. And uh, but uh, so the question is the following, uh, that are, does the classical world look like the classical world because uh, all these quantum mechanical manifestations like interference, entanglement, and superposition are not manifested for all practical purposes. So this is actually a quasi-technical uh, phrase, uh, sure. FAPP, for all practical purposes. Yeah. Or is there really, really is there a separate theory for classical physics? That, you know, if I, if I toss in a, a coin and it's, it goes and lands in that corner of the studio, I can't see it from here. But I'm still happy to make the claim that it is either heads or tails. And that, that being able to make a statement of existence at that level 
is different from what is 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 it truly that way or does quantum mechanics still continue to apply to that coin lying in the in the corner and admit the possibility of there being superpositions of states for that or so on and and is it that the superposition idea doesn't is not a fruitful one to apply because for all practical purposes it really is in the state where it's either up or down or or is there really fundamentally not the notion of superposition applicable so is there uh, an the analogous point. concept to superposition in the classical world well that's the whole that's that the is question. that is the question right whether right. whether whether quantum mechanics really does truly cease to apply at some point or at least or, those phenomena don't right. seem to appear in the well classical. or is it that we don't that we're just not good enough to see uh we, we haven't that there's sort of technical and uh unfortunate uh aspects of the real world that prevent us from seeing quantum mechanics. No, you have a few behavior. results in this rough domain, Anupam. So how does one know whether a system is well, quantum? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> That's too bad. It's, no, it's, it's not, it's not no, satisfying. No, I think Vijay is happy to sleep easy at night. No, it's the no, shut up and calculate school. No, 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 no. But I know I think it's not it's not too bad because it gives us something to do, right? It's a it's a question to investigate and it's a fascinating question to investigate. I think, I think the... we're, we're in a great position today because we're looking at systems which are, uh, uh, you know, which are fascinating both from both points of view that Vijay pointed out. A, they're, on the one hand, they're very complex. You know, they're, they're made of dirty bits of aluminum with junk and impurities and all the rest of it in it. Right, stuff that condensed matter physicists like myself love to think about. Right, and uh, uh, on the other hand, we are also studying single atoms, uh, which are kind of you know, which were only things that were thought of at the level of Gedanken experiments in Thought the experiments. time of Niels Bohr and Einstein. And now they are no longer Gedanken experiments; they are real experiments. They would be happy to mm. see the progress. Yeah, yeah. that that they would definitely enjoy. But I think they would be quite surprised, baffled by the by implications the, of what's by the, happening. By the you know, by the Josephson junction. And the angle of the pendulum behaving like. Do you think a, Niels Bohr like would be uh, surprised to see your lab and what you do? I think he would be, but I think we still don't have the answer to those specific questions which let, had baffled them add, at that right. time. Yeah. Um, I think so. So, so I, I do think in, in some sense. So, so just to push back a little bit against the shut up and calculate perspective, I can I, I can understand why some for someone working day to day with quantum mechanics, that's a useful perspective. At some point, you want to stop worrying about. You know the fundamental ontological structure and and go with what works. Um, but but I, you have a nice critical distance. From it, so. Yeah, I mean, partly since I, I I'm not beholden to the real world, I guess I can I, I can afford to speculate about these kinds of things. Um, but also, I think there is a kind of a question about how one does science uh, that's also involved here. So, um, if we think about relativity, say, so moving back to classical physics, and we think about relativity, um, there was when relativity was initially being developed. Um, Einstein, at least, developed it as a response to ether theory, right? There's this ether. But one can reframe a lot of uh, what Einstein discovered in ways that are compatible with ether theory, right? And and one could potentially say, at that stage at least, that the question about whether the ether exists or not is a kind of metaphysical question that really one can get by using either of these two ways of thinking about the about the system. Um, but I, I, I think there's, there's a reason why a lot of physics community eventually um, went for Einstein's way of looking at things. And that is because there's a kind of 
propulsion that the theory itself has a kind of simplicity inherent in the theory that you don't postulate entities without necessity you don't draw arbitrary lines um and while this might be useful from a methodological point of view i think it's also important to get a handle on this because once you have a cleaner simpler understanding of your theory that's very useful for developments in the theory eventually right having to postulate arbitrary lines in your theory or saying that we don't know where the line is drawn or having to postulate an entity that you can't detect in principle uh, i think that that creates trouble for developing the theory in new domains um so i think i think all the evidence seems to suggest right. in quantum mechanics at least that there is no sharp line no physical boundary separating the quantum world from the classical world uh, and i think fundamentally people operate uh, as if that is true people re- i mean uh, scientists in some sense know that this classical behavior and quantum behavior but there isn't this assumption that at this particular point the quantum translates into the classical uh, the question uh, no i think the question is whether there are times and occasions when it's both quantum and classical right now obviously the moment classical is quantum I, then everything yeah so, so this is I, I guess this is what i was trying to resist is this i so the classical world is in some sense uh, so like i said the entire world is quantum there is right. no separation of the quantum and classical worlds the the classical world is if you want to define a world as classical it's that part of the quantum world that doesn't exhibit the particular kind of phenomena we're talking about superpositions interference entanglement and so on but the question then becomes what does quantum mechanics say about when those phenomena will not be observed and quantum mechanics tells us that under certain conditions those phenomena will no longer be observed so that is also part of what quantum mechanics tells us right now i think the one thing on which i want to push you tarun is i think you made a very quick remark and then we rushed past it about isolation itself which is now are there different kinds of isolation would you because you thought of causation for a right. for a bit in, in in a certain context now yeah. when we say this you know in the textbook sense this quantum world is isolated from the rest of the world or the rest of the environment yeah in what ways could it be isolated what does it mean to be isolated so um so so here is where i think there's potentially something interesting to think about uh, and partly it depends on how we think about our quantum uh, ontology but in the classical realm when we think about a system being isolated we basically mean that it's causally isolated right that that it's uh, you it cannot cause in- for the inside of that system to do something from outside yeah there's there's no kind of direct causal interaction or, uh, or at least no significant causal interaction between the system uh, and the external world and and in some sense causal isolation and informational isolation these two concepts coincide in the classical world the only way one can in some sense transmit information is through some kind of causal uh, uh, relationship um now potentially one can transmit some information without a causal connection so so if you take an example where i convey some information to you whether or not the teacher has entered the classroom i convey that to another student by tapping them on the shoulder so me not tapping them on the shoulder is also conveying a piece of information that the teacher hasn't arrived so in some sense there without a causal interaction i've conveyed information but that relies on the fact that the, that the other uh, possible signal i could convey is done through causal interaction now in quantum mechanics situations can arise in which one can carry information or you can have a particle carrying information about another system um without interacting with it on both branches uh, so uh, in so classic- you can do interaction free measurement um yeah i mean that 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 would be an example so the so and there so so you have a notion of information that at least on the face of it seems to come apart from the idea of causal interaction so so uh, if at least if you think of causal interaction in terms of the interaction of concrete bodies rather than uh, quantum states does this make any sense to you vijay 
Well, I mean, I mean, would you, is this a helpful template at all, informationally isolated and causally isolated? Well, so informationally isolated is something I would prefer uh, more. And in fact, more and more, uh, the development of quantum computing technology and theory is allowing you to look at it from the perspective of information. That you're, you know, this again now starts connecting to the questions of reality and all that. Ultimately, it's the information about the particular system is what is important and not whether that system actually exists or not. It's like basically saying that, okay, X, Y, and Z property of this particular system. And it's actually this information flow, which is very uh, inherently connected with the idea of decoherence, and which is one of the pictures of how the classical world might emerge uh, from the quantum world. And by isolating the quantum system, information is dissipated. It's, it's lost, it le leaks out. That information, which is in principle obtainable, is leaking out to somebody. The somebody could be anyone or any like any complex object. And that in principle, that information is enough to know something about the system. And that that itself sort of results in in changes. Uh, see, the this question of isolation is also a little bit tricky. Now, when it comes to the engineered quantum systems, we work very hard because we know that unless we isolate it sufficiently, we are not going to see this quantum behavior. Right. <laughs> right. Right. But certain objects like atoms, they are especially atoms, individual atoms, not necessarily atoms in a liquid or uh, or a solid. They tend to be naturally isolated because of certain structures, how they interact with uh, the environment. But you know, one one thing we already know that even an atom sitting alone in vacuum is not fully isolated. It actually couples to what we call the zero point uh, fluctuations of the atom uh, of the of the uh, of the vacuum. And, but you can then design or choose, uh, in the case of natural atoms, you can choose uh, an atom which doesn't couple very strongly to this uh, last frontier of, you know, say, zero-point fluctuations. But in our experiments, in our devices, we can actually design both them to not couple. At the same time, we can also design the environment better so that it doesn't uh, uh, couple to it strongly. So here I will make a distinction that environment is basically something which is has infinite degrees of freedom, that you just right. cannot write it down in a simple way. So uh, this uh, notion of going from quantum to classical, usually that, that path is described as a very simple object which you can define quantum mechanically. It now talks to something slightly more complicated maybe, but still it's okay to write down everything and then it goes to another slightly more complicated and so on and so forth and at some point this very complicated system doesn't show quantum mechanical behavior and quantum mechanics actually tells you the theory tells you how to compute and people have done experiments where this kind of chain is actually possible to construct and control very carefully where you can assign a sense of okay how complicated the system is getting and consequently it loses its quantum properties faster and faster and faster so that by the time you come to any realistic classical uh, world all of these properties vanish very quickly and for you, you don't have superpositions anymore you only have probabilities so either this or that and what is the measure of complexity that is again uh, a, a very uh, system dependent uh, uh, you know, description and people have come up with various measures and I believe, Anupam, that there is no um, yeah, sort no, of universally accepted notion correct. of what macroscopic uh, system that, is. That is correct. Uh, that is correct. But there are some examples where it's actually uh, fairly easy to see 
that you are at least increasing the complexity in some controlled way. And these are actually experiments done with collections of uh, you know light particles. Uh, these are often called coherent states of light. And they are actually the closest uh, to the classical world that they're very similar to just a regular uh, oscillator. Right. And in, in that language, the bigger the oscillation, the more classical it, it is. is. Right. And people have seen this, that if you take uh, what we normally call a quantum system, which is sort of very simple, isolated, and we cause it to interact with this oscillator, if this oscillator is now uh, oscillating with very small energy, then it still behaves quantum mechanically. But the moment you make this very large, that it stops behaving quantum mechanically, and you can see that time scale over which things start to degrade, it becomes faster and faster. Now, these are actually uh, very seminal experiments done in the group of Serge Aroche, uh, who's the one of the Nobel Prize winner in 2012, where they show that this scaling actually works. The problem is you can still only do this experiment up to... Uh, a level of complexity which unfortunately is still too small. Which is does not arise. It's, which is what? Which is what? Far from shooting this cat. It's far from, you know, saying that. <laughs> it's far know, from the cat, for sure. Bring a cat into shooting. the picture. No, but how Much many? Much farther. How, how, how? I don't remember, maybe tens of photons or so. Yeah, so tens. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. that's really yeah. tiny. Yeah, 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 that is, that's actually the part of the, so, you know, so the, the, the so these are all, uh, the, the, that's, those are really a, a good examples that Vijay is bringing uh, to the discussion. And that, so, we, so, you know, this is actually one of the frontiers of our knowledge. That is, if there is, is there, so the question, first of all, is, is there a dividing line between classical physics and quantum physics, as we began by talking about? But do the quantum and, systems themselves, Anup, I'm sorry to interrupt yeah, you, do, no, they, do they, do they, are they isolated from each other? Not entirely, but they don't have to be. They can then be, they, you can have a quantum mechanical system where things are tightly talking to one another and that composite itself can be a quantum system. Right. Okay. And uh, and there can be a cascade of uh, of things that the system is coupled to. Lots of, of quantum objects coupled together. Yes, there, there can be a cascade of environments, if you like. Right. And so exactly where is there, whether, so question one, is there a line between quantum mechanics? Is there a sharp line? If there is a line, where is it? And so the, the, this business of the boundary between classical and quantum, trying to determine where it is and trying to push this boundary further out, I think is is one of our is is itself one of the boundaries of our ignorance, if you will. <laughs> right. It's a frontier of ignorance that we are trying to uh, push on. And uh, so I think it might be helpful to uh, to sort of just to set the discussion to to give an, a concrete example of a quantum mechanical system and I, I think uh, just so that we can, we can sort of make the discussion a little more uh, uh, let's go for it definitive yeah and that is you know so the, the, the classic manifestation of quantum mechanics is what one might call the uh, the flip-flop uh, resonance seen in the ammonia molecule sure where it turns from where the nitrogen atom goes from one side of the plane of the hydrogens to the other side right so now there are lots of systems like this. So the, so, the, so the ammonia molecule is an example of what's called, a, I think the chemists call it a flexible molecule. And, and then there are, so you know, the, the first example of the molecule where we discovered that there is a, that molecules can be left-handed or right-handed, uh, tartaric right. acid. Right. right. I don't think anyone has ever seen a molecule of tartaric acid uh, flip from being left-handed to right-handed by quantum mechanics. Okay. That would be a fascinating experiment to do. And, 
but then you know you can sort of scale it up what about the proteins sorry what do you mean so you either see left handed tartaric acid or right handed tartaric yeah, acid the, but you never see them undergo you, that transition you never see them so in principle the the if you applied quantum theory to an isolated molecule of tartaric acid it should flip from left handed to right handed and then flip back to being left handed so it should oscillate between the two states left right left right and it should do that just like the ammonia molecule flips from one state to the other state so why does it not happen and that's the question so you know but just before i come to the question sure. why not happens <laughs> let's let's talk about you know let's push this even further so you could ask you know what about the proteins and the molecules of dna in our bodies they don't ever do that and it's a good thing they don't uh, <laughs> i think yeah certain left handed versions of proteins would be very toxic right so uh, uh yeah so you know so there so this is an example of uh, of scaling up of uh, the system where we see quantum mechanics operating at simpler level so we can go to slightly more complicated molecules than ammonia uh, but the moment it gets to something even at the level of tartaric acid which is not a complicated molecule i think it's i'm not my chemistry is not uh, uh as good as it should be but i think it has it's a four carbon system hmm. so it's a relatively small molecule but even on that level of molecule we find it very hard to isolate it sufficiently from its environment as to enable us to see quantum mechanical effects and of course that's you know that's sort of a prejudice if you will that we believe that the reason we don't see the reason our the our proteins and dna don't flip back and forth is that inside the body the protein molecules are not isolated they're they're there the environment is is very strong they're all sitting inside water and they're coupled to all kinds of things and so on and and but you know you could you might think that that hey somebody like uh, you know that some clever experimentalist should be able to make a beam or study an isolated tartaric acid molecule but in the case and of tartaric acid are are either left handed or right handed tartaric acid more prevalent in nature or, or because sometimes stuff like that happens so i don't know real wine is it racemic right real wine is is one kind i think right and that's how pasteur discovered it right that in the lab he could grow both kinds and then i, I i'm getting it wrong but the lab is in the lab you can do one kind of tartaric acid and in in real wine there's only the other kind where it's only one one handedness versus the other handedness and so of course uh, so you think the fact that at very small levels systems are quantum and the moment you scale them even to like uh, the levels you spoke about yeah. it has something to do with the environment that's imposing the, that's, itself on it that is one of the that is one of the currently accepted lines of argument that the reason we don't see uh, that if we could isolate tartaric acid sufficiently we would be able to see this flip flop it might take a long time it might has that know, been achieved with other molecules that's been achieved with other molecules so we there's a there's a small catalog of about i would say about a dozen flexible molecules right uh, ammonia is the textbook case but there are other molecules where we do see this kind of flip flop happening and do and, these flexible molecules have something in common no there uh, because some kind of a theory would lie there they no, have the, the only thing they have in common is the is the fact that they have, they have two states hmm. that are equivalent to one another in the case of ammonia they're mirror images in the case of tartaric acid also they're mirror images and a mirror image is about as equivalent as you can think of right that 
there's nothing special about being left-handed or about being right-handed let's bring the observer into this right because there's always observer effects when you think of quantum systems and so on so where I mean, does that come so, in so so again uh, i think if you so so actually piggybacking a little bit on what anupam said so um a part of the difference so, so i think that some people uh, i don't think most scientists now would think of it this way but some people have traditionally thought about the dif- distinction between the quantum and classical world as this very sharp distinction a fundamental kind of ontological distinction that if some lev- at some scale at some level of macroscopicness you switch to a classical world um now if that was your position then the question about uh, why tartaric acid doesn't display the same uh, uh quantum behavior you see in ammonia would not be a technological question right it would not be a question about uh, our ability to to isolate or control the environment uh it would it would be a fundamental ontological thing that once uh, a molecule gets this big it's no longer uh um uh quantum uh, and i think i think there's many reasons not to have that particular view i think it is a technological problem it might be an insurmountable technological problem at a certain uh, size of a system um and so i once you start thinking of quantum mechanics that way i don't think the observer i think the question is whether a system is quantum or not does it depend on the observer looking at yeah, it yeah so that's that's why i said so 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 i don't think adding the observer does anything there because <laughs> if the question of whether or not a system exhibits quantum behavior has to do with its uh, our its our ability to isolate it from the environment or whether or not it's isolated uh, from the environment in a certain sense whether or not there are traces Uh, or information about the system in the environment then the observer is not adding it. this idea that the observer collapses the wave function that's not adding anything to our account of why you move from the from the quantum to the classical world i think where the observer might become relevant in that story is whenever we talk about um uh, uh quantum systems evolving or superpositions in general uh you have multiple possible bases right so you have a uh, what is a superposition in one basis is not going to be a superposition in another basis right uh, and and so when you think about decoherence for instance right uh, there are there's a particular basis in which you see decoherence um now one might have a question of why certain bases are picked out as the relevant bases for thinking about the fundamental structure of the world for thinking about whether the system is genuinely uh, um isolated and or not and here um there might be something about the idea of information carrying degrees of freedom um that might be relevant and there potentially at least one might have to define information carrying degrees of freedom in terms of uh, a relationship with an observer but i'm not i'm i'm not sure if that's the case do you think do you think where's the observer for you for in in your in your equations in your math yeah <laughs> so the, the observer is how do you account is, for it is truly problematic in quantum theory i mean i think that you know that in in classical theory of course we we sort of admit of the observer but the observer doesn't play an important an essential role right and that uh, so the again a very elementary example which uh, everyone has heard of is that uh, the observer as it were interferes with the uh, observed so if i want to measure the the temperature of the water in this bottle water bottle for example i dip a thermometer in it and uh, of course that interferes with the water because it absorbs a little bit of heat from the water in the process of making the temperature measurement but the belief in quantum in classical the classical viewpoint was always that that a from the technological point of view one could make this disturbance as small as one pleased and b that it wasn't really fundamental to the actual way in which this bottle of water went about its business okay 
and whereas in quantum mechanics both things are are, are very believed important. to be not true but but that, isn't that, that that's not exclusive to the relation to the observer right that's that's true of any interaction with uh, the environment true but it is particularly relevant to the case of observing because without that there is no way of getting information about sure, the system. Sure, yeah, yeah. Right? So when you say observing, yeah. you mean measuring. Measuring, yes. Measuring right. and getting information about a system, right? Because this is sort of also the point that Vijay was raising, that if the system is, is really perfectly isolated by itself, then you cannot can access never it for, inter yeah. interact with it, then it's out there in its own world and you there is no way to say anything about it. <laughs> so one must, of necessity, sort of touch it, feel it, and poke it in different ways in order to find out what it's doing or how it's behaving. And in, in quantum mechanics, this, this problem, this is the real problem because uh, you, the, the, there's a sort of a, this disturbance uh, interferes with what the system is doing in a very, very essential way. And so in fact, I would love to hear Tarun's perspective on this, that there is a, there's a sort of an aspect of, of, of this business of observing and measuring which has always bothered me and which I, or not always, which has, which didn't bother me at the time when I first started looking at it because I didn't understand it. But if you go back to the early, the first paper by Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen, is EPR can, paradox, can yeah. the quantum mechanical description of reality be considered complete? Yeah. And uh, Bohr's reply to it, which has the same title. The two papers <laughs> yes. have exactly the same title. And if you try and read Bohr's reply, I don't know, have, have you ever tried reading it? I don't think it? I've read it. How about it, you, no. Tarun? I haven't tried it. I have it on my desktop. It's, it's <laughs> fascinating. It's fascinating. So first of all, it has this quality that all of Bohr's writings of that time have. You know, that's sort of maddeningly opaque and you don't understand what the hell this man is talking about, you know? And, uh, and but then if you sort of, I think, maybe one is putting an interpretation on it. I think this is what Bohr meant. It's that, so Bohr's objection to Einstein was that, you know, you cannot talk about the things that you did not measure, okay? That uh, whereas the entire line of, and, and so in a sense, I would say that maybe one is sort of post-constructing this, one is interpreting Bohr post-facto in light of Bell's argument. Because the whole line of Bell's argument, one of the key parts of Bell's argument, which is actually not in his initial paper, but which was picked up, fairly quickly further on was was that there's an assumption in there which is that of induction and that is that you know that that you you have your your two particles that are flying apart in this einstein podolsky rosen pair once you see the you, once you see one you know the other yeah that or, or rather if you didn't by measuring something over here you can you say infer, the, the value of the you other you can one. infer something about the other particle even though you chose not to measure that particle. so but does right? inference qualify for observation yeah that's the whole thing so this is exactly right so this is that particular kind of inference in particular right. that is you know so the the the, the example that i and give more to, had a problem with that i think so exactly so this is this so the example i give to my my students is that uh, just as I can say that we're all sitting here on these uh, four chairs and that is an indisputable statement, I can also say, you know, I can say things like, if I hadn't gone back uh, into the house to fetch my coat, I would not have missed the bus, right? Everyone understands what that means. And that's an eminently sensible way of thinking. And, and now you can argue about it. You can So you can say, well, you know, of course, that that makes sense. You do you do this on a regular basis, and every time you do this, ninety percent of the time you go into your house to fetch your coat, you are going to miss the bus. So that is a sensible statement to make. But that's not the point. 
that's the kind of line of discussion that that <laughs> bell was talking about the point is on that particular tuesday when you went into your house to fetch your coat did you miss the bus on that occasion because you went into your house or not yeah right yeah and so this is what's called this goes by the name of counterfactual definiteness and uh, that is can you can you make statements about things that that about that about what you might have seen had you chosen to look at it right and so your so, your inference or conclusion is statistical it's not about that yes but in, in quantum mechanics so what so i in fact the, this is the only sensible way i can sense i can put to why bell's inequality or the inequality that's named after legat myself right is is not uh, is uh, is violated is that th- this is not true <laughs> okay that in the and we sort of don't have trouble accepting this fact in the microscopic world right it doesn't really bother us that you know okay i didn't choose to measure this uh, the atoms uh, position in this particular run and then i can't say anything about it but it does bother us when we say things like you know no the bus didn't come uh, on that particular day uh, we sort of don't want to attach causation to it at least right it but it's uh, but at the same time you know this is a kind of statement that one can neither prove nor disprove right anupam but mm. so this is a question a clarification yeah. so um uh in bell's proof um if one rejects contextuality which is the the idea that your measurements don't depend on what other measurements you've performed either spatially or temporally distant measurements you've performed uh, if one rejects that then can't one maintain some uh, counterfactual uh, definiteness in a certain sense like no i think you if you don't assume that counterfactual definiteness is true you cannot make bell's argument at all <laughs> to, to derive bell's inequality you need that that is an that is a key ingredient of that inequality so in in a sense you know that 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 alternative world view that bell is beginning with in order to derive his inequality has that as an essential so my the kind of test case i always think about for these kinds of thing is is bohm's uh uh understanding of quantum mechanics right which was which was a uh, hidden variable theory yep. a non local hidden variable theory but you had not just the wave function but you had particles uh with particular properties both before and after uh, after the experiment but it was also it's also true that his his in his theory what you measure uh depends on the other measurements you've conducted you can't uh, your measurements are not independent of each other so you have this element of contextuality um so so that theory at least a hidden variable theory of that kind does seem to have this idea of what bell would call beables but the beables are not local um in the way uh, bell would have thought about them right and is that is that because the idea of local itself is different no i think the idea of local is the same so so bohm's theory is just a non local theory Hmm. it's not it's not a local theory it's uh, you can't have so what bell proved is that you can't have a local hidden variable theory that's an impossible theory so if you want to have an uh, a hidden variable theory it has to be non local uh, and that was bohm's uh, mechanics bohmian mechanics is uh, bohmian mechanics doesn't um uh, it doesn't predict something different from what quantum mechanics predicts and yet it's a hidden variable theory um and so the question there is do, doesn't that then have this idea of uh, if if the particles are there independent uh of our measurement or our observation then in some sense the idea of what would have happened if we hadn't made this measurement is also a definite yeah that's true but you know that we we sort of bring that in at the expense of giving up locality sure yeah right and this is that's another one of the things that we don't want to give up yeah, yeah i mean this 
all these different inequalities or different uh, interpretations are giving up something or the other yeah, and yeah. it again as i was saying it boils down to which one you are happy to go yeah, to bed but, with but are you and, willing to give up this this statement that if i hadn't gone up gone into the house uh, to fetch my coat i no, would have missed the bus no i mean i i'm of the opinion that 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 question itself in some sense irrelevant if you haven't done that measurement then you cannot ask that question you can assign probabilities as you were saying earlier no. that based no. on previous experiments no. you can assign probabilities to what might have happened but for that particular instance you can't no but you and, know so the, so if you if so violations of the macroscopic uh, macro realistic inequality or the you know the one by like it myself right. yeah. that one does require you to give up uh, this notion of counterfactual definiteness even at the macroscopic level and yes. of course we're not at the macroscopic level you yet. have to give it up at the level of the at macroscopic the, at the level at the macroscopic level Why so? if it were because that is part of the but again right. it's either that the, or give the, up the idea of non invasive measurement right that's no no but mm. the testing of uh, you know the the lg yeah. inequality yeah has to be verified at the macroscopic level yes correct it has not it has not been done no it has not been done and it's hard to do it has not been done so actually i would love to hear vijay's yeah. perspective on it on, and, i mean people, on, on for that. example in yeah. uh, in the uh, experimental systems which we work with uh, you know that experiment has been done and it was maybe now almost maybe 10 years ago uh, they had measured Palacios the violation Lalo of uh, company, exactly the, that's the french not, but that 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 experiment well that particular experiment i think is not um, which which experiment are you referring to this is an experiment done on superconducting qubits uh, by the french group uh, in saclay hmm. uh, and they they violate i don't know a particular version Form. of yeah, uh, correct. the lg inequality and you are unhappy with them because well vijay can tell me more why i should be unhappy this <laughs> <laughs> is no, i mean, is, I mean my understanding <laughs> was that at least in the standard framework it was a valid uh, uh, experiment yeah um, so no there's a lot of additional assumptions that are made in the both in performing the experiment and in interpreting it and uh, if you one wanted to say why they had found a violation of the inequality one could one could point to those assumptions as hmm. as weaknesses in the interpretation that it's not really that it's you know because if 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 the theory if in order to sustain a certain conclusion you have uh, five or six assumptions in it and then that conclusion is not sustained then the question is which of those five or six assumptions do you uh, question right and, and there are other assumptions many of those uh, in that particular experiment that one can question instead of the ones that are fundamental to the construction of the inequality and these so. are typically problems with any experiment and yeah. in fact if you follow the history of uh, experiments related to uh, bell's inequalities that's what has happened they've tried to make it as close to the ideal condition set by yeah. bell and you know things have gotten closer and closer and at least so far we have not found any problems with them but you know the often these are referred to as loopholes which can exist uh, because of the uh, constraints of your experimental apparatus so um but i mean here just to uh, finish this point and add a, a, another crazy twist to this uh, story is that if i want to say that was the experiment using superconducting qubits which let's say violated uh, the legged garg inequality was a demonstration on a macroscopic system that again is is a crazy question because you can think of this oscillator in in two different ways you can say that it's an oscillation which is comprised of millions of electrons oscillating together so sounds like a lot of them but you can also say that i only put one photon 
And in fact, this photon is much more feeble than our optical photon. It's a microwave photon, much less energy. So it's still just one photon. <laughs> so is it is it as quantum and microscopic as yeah. it gets, or is it uh, truly uh, macroscopic? And you know, and in fact, I think Leggett himself had proposed some early uh, versions of experiments using superconducting circuits to uh, to talk about you know macroscopic superposition. Yeah, those were the ones like that, that we were initially t that were exactly the systems we had in mind. If you had to design an experiment, I know you're not looking for violations to your inequality. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's that. It's, it wouldn't be a good idea. No, no. no, no he no. is look so violating yeah. in his his inequality means that it's it's quantum mechanics as yeah. as written yeah. today. Right. right, correct. That's true. Yeah, yeah. So there was a. So in fact, I have a question for Vijay. That is, you know, that uh, Bell's inequality at one time was could have been regarded purely as a metaphysical question, hmm. right? So, in fact, at one point, uh, uh, when Einstein sort of asked this question, uh, uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember who it was who uh, couldn't understand uh, what Einstein was saying. Uh, mm. this, this business of the Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen paradox. Mm -hmm. uh, that, the name of the third party escapes me. But that person then went and complained to Pauli. Uh, and uh, <laughs> Pauli said, well, you know, this is, uh, or no, Pauli didn't say to this person directly. He, Pauli wrote a letter or said to yet another person, a fourth party, that so-and-so was, uh, you know, trying to tell me what uh, Einstein had said, and he completely missed Einstein's point. And, uh, but of course, you know, these are, I mean, this is the kind of question that Einstein always asks, and one might as well worry about, uh, that question as the ancient one of how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, right? <laughs> and so, the, 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 so this is kind of the this is the this is the old version of the shut up and calculate, right? <laughs> yeah, perhaps not. But, uh, whether these are angels, right, they, right. Whether so, they are the same so ontological statuses. Of, you know, so, so, the, so metaphysics is a dirty word in, in certain yeah. quarters, and uh, uh, is it a dirty word in your mind? No, no, it's not. So, the, so, the, so bells, bells argument at one point could also have been said to be entirely metaphysical, right? But uh, in fact, in the realm so of what, what is the what does the argument metaphysically pose? Well, in the sense that it's only it's only investigating a question of whether or not, uh, you know, quantum mechanics is locally realistic or not. It doesn't really influence, it doesn't affect our, so in fact, that's what I was going to come to today, that it, that uh, the quantum communication uh, protocol, some of those exploit uh, Bell's inequality and Bell's arguments in a in a very interesting way. You mean the algorithms? Um, no, he's talking about the techniques which we use to communicate securely. Yeah, and that rely on inherently sharing uh, two particles which have been entangled, and then you know those correlations. And are there limits uh, are... to that? I mean, do they they can be anywhere on Earth, and that works, and so on? Like well, how, how, what are the limits to entanglement in your engineered system? So uh, my own systems are not used for these kind of experiments of communication because by definition, communications means long distance. Sure. And you want to use light. Sure. And uh, so this is, in fact, one of the most advanced quantum technology which currently exists. You can actually buy these things from companies and set up a secure link which based which run uh, one of these quantum. There are actually many. Some only rely on superposition. Others rely on entanglement as well. Uh, but, you know, there was this major uh, uh, 
announcement by the Chinese group uh, yeah. a couple of years back where they were able to do it over a satellite link mm. and so this is a real technology so uh, you know in in that sense i guess maybe what anupam was trying to say that these are no longer just abstract questions yeah. the fact that this works means that you know there is some uh, underlying yeah. truth to it so is there, but, is Is but it still doesn't answer no, uh, no, no, any no. question about how you interpret it. So entanglement it. is a real physical phenomenon. Absolutely. It, so it, you're okay with that? Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm absolutely okay with that. I mean, that. there's no way to dispose. Yeah, yeah, so, so in fact, it's a, no we, we, the people in the quantum communications uh, trade refer to it as a resource. Right. Okay. <laughs> it absolutely without any uh, irony or or comic aspect to it. It's a it's a resource. So is the can is that do you? So, so since I'm not an experimentalist, I haven't thought of it. But is there an application for the macro, the macro realistic inequality also in the future that one could imagine? <laughs> oh, you mean like some, like how quantum communication directly uh, in the way that is, is in closely the way that linked to Bell Bell inequalities? Well, I mean, you know, in some sense, uh, any uh, physical phenomena which exploits quantum superposition or entangled is 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 related to these aspects as well. So. uh but maybe not in such a direct sense but i haven't thought about it in that angle that hey is there a practical application of the fact well, that no, i'm sure the ability to LG, place larger and larger systems in superpositions would have a number of practical well you might be able to if test if you were able to do it then but the yeah. problem is are we able to do it no i, I want to i've them. i've posed this question to 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 a very small number of experimentalists because you know the Uh, experimental physicists are a different breed and they they think <laughs> in different ways than theoreticians do and uh You're uh, registering a complaint with Vijay. Uh, no, 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 no. This is, this is uh, said with a great deal of envy. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's the can future? I back, sorry, can yeah. I come back briefly to that question about the observer? Uh, that Please, was, that was raised earlier. Um, I, I think uh, part of the way one should try to understand quantum mechanics from a philosophical perspective, at least, is that there's this. I think there's there's this lingering Cartesian perspective we have when we think about any theory. where subject uh, object yeah yeah that that our experience uh, in some sense we paint onto the world in a way that we probably shouldn't um, and one way to see this is when you hear people talk about for example the puzzle of quantum mechanics or the measurement problem or how, um it's usually framed as the incompatibility of three statements or not usually but sometimes framed as an incompatibility of three statements the first is that the quantum dynamics are complete that what the schrodinger equation tells us is all there is to a quantum state is nothing beyond that the second is uh, that the quantum dynamics are uninterrupted so that so you don't have some other dynamical process that interrupts the quantum dynamics and the third is that measurements have determinate outcomes right the combination of these three things seems to be inconsistent that if the quantum dynamics are uninterrupted and complete then measurements don't have determinate outcomes now it turns out So, so if you examine those three assumptions i think one of them is not like the other two the claim that measurements have determinate outcomes is not something that theory tells us the other two are things that theory tells us right theory the schrodinger equation is something that's discovered in science and the apparent uh, completeness and uninterruptibility of the schrodinger equation is also something that's being increasingly revealed to us through uh, as our ability to control nature advances but the idea that experiments have determinate outcomes that is a pure epistemological assumption right science is not what is telling us that is the simple fact that we observe determinate outcomes that's a great that point. tells us that uh, that me- measurements have determinate outcomes but the question is so but if that is the reason we believe measurements have determinate outcomes then the third assumption should not be measurements have determinate outcomes but observers observe determinate outcomes right that is that is the third claim and that claim is not inconsistent with the first two claims 
then the question so so it is it is possible one can construct models but we treat observers like any other detector where observers will observe determinate outcomes but that doesn't mean there are actually determinate outcomes right uh, i mean we, we know this for detectors for physical detectors detectors um once they get entangled let's say with another state or uh, the detector itself the quantum what the quantum dynamics predicts is the detector itself becomes entangled on each branch of that entanglement the detector displays a determinate outcome there's no branch on which the detector doesn't display a determinate outcome and fundamentally unless we have this cartesian hangover where observation is thought to be this a conscious experience is thought to be this access to reality that's different from what we have for the objective detectors unless we have that hangover I, i see no reason not to treat observers the same way right if we believe that physical detectors that we wouldn't count as observers necessarily are able to display determinate outcomes while themselves not being in a determinate state then i have seen no reason not to believe that observers can observe determinate outcomes without themselves being in a determinate state which means the fundamental quantum state is also not determined what's your take on this vijay so again uh, at some level from the point of view of experiments it doesn't matter at all which one you uh, choose uh, but there are uh, more and more careful experiments being done where you can actually start separating some of these things out and this is sort of again linked to something i said earlier is how you construct this chain um you can uh, and and this is sort of uh, something i wanted to say earlier but so it, it's a good point to mention this you can you know start a process of measurement you know as you were saying that uh, quantum mechanics says if you now treat the detector and the quantum system together as a unified quantum system the natural evolution uh, from schrodinger equation says that now the uh, quantum system and the detector are in an entangled state right but you could start this process but not complete it in the sense that this detector has not been uh, further observed you know and this is where the issue of comes in that you know this observer is this you know and then you go into whether this observer has to be a conscious observer or is it just you know we like to say that as long as this information has leaked out into some infinite degrees of freedom or essentially it's irreversible then you you see one of these outcomes of the detector and corresponding to that you also infer that if the detector said one the system was in one state and the detector said zero the the original quantum system was in one state so i think more careful experiments of this type might reveal something and my general take always is been that look um, as tarun was saying that the the completeness of schrodinger's equations applicability to everything is also something which is sort of we have sort of become more and more confident that we just haven't found any violation so unless a carefully prepared experiment violates something which schrodinger equation predicts we will not be able to find the next step and this is how usually science right. goes right. now sometimes these these carefully designed experiments are done in the head and people make <laughs> predictions but i think in this case it might be yeah. uh, it might take a real genius to sort of imagine that experiment and do it in the head and then come up with an argument but there are experiments of this type uh, and just a side comment here is that the conventional picture of uh, quantum mechanics if you separate the detection part is not the schrodinger equation doesn't tell you the the results of the measurement that is sort of thrown in by hand yeah. at right. the end so it's only when you say that okay <laughs> let me just treat the entire universe as a quantum mechanical and write down the full equation then everything is completely deterministic so this this sort of also goes out of the picture it's the practicality that you will never be able to do that and you will never be able to keep track of everything is what gives rise to what we experience uh 
as the results of a measurement. But again, repeating the same thing that you can choose whatever you want. The, at the end of the day, experiments are not going to say anything different than what they do now. Um, so the, I think the, the the challenge really is to come up with a test which would allow you, you know, just like if Bell's inequality were not violated, then we would have known that there's a problem with quantum mechanics, the way we know it. No. But if there are some other uh, experiments and or hypothesis put forward and unless tested, well, uh, I think so, this is but not sort of the, 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 the So this again gets back to the issue of uh, macroscopicity, that, you know, that if we start thinking in terms of this chain of observers, and you extend this idea that the observer, that the detector gets entangled with the state of the environment, then people have constructed really ridiculous, uh, th that when you extrapolate this to, to schemes that, you know, you, you, you make the, you set the measurement up in such a way that if uh, the trigger goes off in this laboratory, right? So you set up the two branches of your, of your photon so that one goes in, in this detector and that goes in that detector, that if it goes off, and uh, it and triggers so within so this on. laboratory, then the person in that laboratory is going to run up to the third floor of his uh, his building and sing Ave Maria. Right? <laughs> Whereas if it goes off in the other branch, then the person in that laboratory is is going to do you know uh, something else like a dance. Or that's a different right? version of a Schrodinger's yeah, right? That's yeah. but we yeah. can sort yeah. of exactly. But you can build up you know even ever and ever more. Yeah. You can you can not just build up uh, the cat, but you can build up things like where it's sort of pre-programmed as to what will then, you know, for the course of actions is pre-programmed, right? And are those, are we really willing to extend the idea of quantum mechanical superpositions to those states or or not? And so it's just this aesthetic that that our aesthetic consideration keeps coming back at us. That, and, that, and, I, I think that was my point. And I, I think, so, so my personal perspective on this is that I am very skeptical about our common sense intuitions about how the world functions. I, I, I agree with common that. Common sense yeah. gives us very little guidance to how the world functions. And so I think our best guide to the ontology fundamental And common sense has not been a good good guide yeah. for a very long time, at least with this breakthrough. <laughs> with this breakthrough. Our best guide uh, to the fundamental ontology yeah. of the world is the science itself. And and the simplest interpretation of the science as it is suggests that there's no point what at is which your, the what wave is, function collapses, so to speak. What is your favorite or best candidate uh, interpretation for... So like I said, so I, I don't think any of the interpretations are without problems. I think they all have issues. But I think the one that is uh, best supported by both our understanding of how science works and the evidence is, is what is often called the many worlds interpretation or the Everettian so, interpretation, which basically says then that there's nothing branching. except the Schrodinger dynamics that there is no other process beyond the Schrodinger dynamics. There's no interruption of the Schrodinger dynamics. And that includes observers. And they, so that's just infinite branching. Um, you can think of it as branching. But uh, again, I think this idea of the world actually splitting that comes to mind when you say this thing, that's... that's, I mean, this, it, that's so what is really going on is that you have a wave function that describes your entire system, the, the, the system you're studying, the detector, the observer, whatever chain of observers you have. And your Schrodinger equation tells you how that wave function evolves. Uh, now, there's, you can label certain patterns in that wave function's evolution as branching uh, when you don't have much interference anymore between two branches, say. You can call that branching, but that's not like the world actually splitting into two in right. a sense that seems intuitively implausible, like violating some kind of conservation of mass or something. That is not what's going on. Uh, I have a little bit of a yeah. problem with that. I mean, and that's the following, you know, that when, so when Vijay chooses to make a certain measurement in his lab, for example, I mean, how do I trace that back to, uh, as an effect which had a cause? 
that is i don't understand uh, how i can i can make that leap that it is that that or the other way to put it is that you know we all sort of think that that we can choose to do things we can we can measure things we can choose to measure this or that and and that process itself can't be viewed as the result of but isn't that the previous that, schrodinger that, that is not that, that's outcome. not a problem that's exclusive to quantum mechanics no i agree with that but even in, in classical in, mechanics it's deterministic so you have the same issue Yeah, yeah I, agree, I, I agree with yeah. that. I mean, strict determinism right. does have that problem even in classical mechanics. But in classical mechanics, we uh, basically say that this is because of in in uh, accurate or you know in incomplete information about initial conditions is what gives rise to the randomness, and I think that's where the hidden variable theories come in for explaining quantum mechanics. But at least so far, we know that yeah. you know, several of them don't don't yeah. work. No, that's correct. So this indeterminism seems to be inherent yeah. uh, in this formalism and not due to lack of uh, sufficient information. Well, so, I, I would so, say, so, so just to quickly respond to that, um, I think, so So I, I do really, I do have an attachment to the idea that we're making pre-decisions uh, mm -hmm. about what to measure. And in some sense, that's an assumption, even in Bell's theorem, there's, a, there's an assumption true. that you're able yeah. to set your uh you choose your measurement if if mm -hmm. the measurement itself was determined by the initial conditions yes. then you could account for uh uh the inequalities in a different way but um i think in some sense um maybe maybe i've just made peace with the idea that i i don't think free will is a coherent concept fundamentally i think i think look we are physics right our brains are are physical systems there's no there's nothing that's non physical Uh, about our brains and so whatever the dynamics is governing our brains it's it's not going to have some extra physical component that is telling us what experiment to choose or not to choose right so i mean i, I think if you have a thorough going physicalist view of the world that everything we talk about the molecules in our brain the molecules we study they're all the same kind of molecules at the fundamental level I, I, it seems inescapable to me that we have to think of it as fundamentally quantum mechanical no, i think so i i i i think i would agree with with uh, with all of that and uh, so i sort of again i'm repeating myself a little but i think so this is uh, so this is where we need uh, real experiments on blobs of aluminum and photons and semiconductors so what's the future why don't we end with that yeah so what's the future where's this headed so i think the, this is so yeah the perfect point to segue to that and the the future i think really is the, 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 that we've argued about the the philosophical question and the interpretational and the metaphysical aspects of this for for a long for a very long time and it's and that's not to say that we haven't made any progress we've we've sharpened the debate in some ways and uh so uh, certain lines of inquiry have become clear but uh, but to me the urgent thing that we really need is is more and more experiments where we push this at the at the so this is sort of a less ambitious way of saying the what the goals of the experiment are if you don't want to say that it's to you know to really resolve this question then one can take the, even the more limited point of view and i find that even i find even that more limited goal very satisfying and that is to push this this boundary of what is the, the this supposed boundary or between the quantum and the classical interface yeah, just is keep expanding yes yeah, that's yeah. right push this boundary as far as we can what's the future taran So, so yeah, in some sense, I agree with that. I mean, despite my bread and butter being these philosophical questions, I think the interesting future is in what we can actually achieve experimentally. Um, but I, I don't think that is independent uh, of what we can achieve philosophically. I think, in some sense, the refinement in quantum mechanics that has happened due to various experimental advances has also refined the way we ask 
these metaphysical questions. I think uh, an important aspect of that is one might call the quantum information revolution. Thinking of quantum mechanics from an informational perspective, I think has important implications for how we think about the philosophical question of how to interpret quantum mechanics, how to think about the fundamental ontology uh, of the world and so on. So I am also excited to see where experiment takes us next uh, and how that might impact our vision of what the world is like at the fundamental level. And you're the representative of experimentalists. <laughs> so. Yeah, so I mean, I see experiments doing actually two things, uh, which are kind of uh, reinforcing each other, but address different questions. One is, of course, uh, saying that can we construct uh, experiments which allow us to test the limits of the current formulation of quantum mechanics. And if we see a violation, that will give us a hint on how to change it. There's no guarantee that the new version of quantum mechanics, if it comes, will still not have interpretational issues. It, you might just find something which is missing uh, on certain you know, energy scales or length scales. Is it scales. possible to interpret uh, quantum mechanics? Is, is, is that even possible? Because... We, you I know, think, we are making that assumption that somehow the right interpretation or whatever is ahead of us. It's likely. I mean, everything is possible to settle it experimentally. That that can't, can't be done. But well, but it's it's a hard question because right. posing the right question. I think that's where the brilliance of Bell and you know later other inequalities came in. That he was able to formulate this question in the right way, which would allow you to uh, say very clearly that okay, if you assume. Uh, that there is a hidden theory of certain type, then it would behave like this. But the current quantum mechanical picture says that it's different right. and you test it and you know your answer. Right. So those kind of, I think, precise statements are, I think, not so easy to make. Right. And I think that's where you, you would need some very clever thinking to do that. And then, of course, that experiment has to be realistic uh, <laughs> to be able yeah. to perform. And, but these things continuously evolve. The other side is, of course, that we are trying to now use these uh, superposition and entanglement uh, as a resource, as Anupam was uh, saying, for realistic technologies. And for some of them, you are going to be pushing the limits of how we create these controlled quantum systems. And maybe just doing that will reveal some interesting surprises. Yeah, It could reveal Even some nasty thing that, okay, you just cannot do it or it's too hard to do it now and... Uh, everything comes crashing down. What's once, your best case for uh, the next 50, 100 years? Well, the next 50, 100 years, the best case scenario is that uh, all of these technologies uh, work as predicted and we go into a new scientific revolution. The super case scenario is that along the way, it solves the interpretational uh, problem <laughs> as well. Uh, that puts mm. philosophers out of jail. <laughs> no, 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 I, no I mean, but, philosophers are always going to find something but, to argue. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think you you always need people asking questions from all kinds of angles so that you know you make progress. Uh, I think without questioning, we never move forward. Can't be just happy with status quo all the time. It's not always shut up and can't. <laughs> you do it most of the time. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm a great believer in that. In fact, you know, that statement has been erroneously attributed to me also. Oh, really? Shut up yeah. and can't. Oh, it's really? not, I yeah. See, Somebody didn't know that I was not the first person to say you, that. You hear my formally take it back. I, 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 I said it in a setting where I thought everyone would know where it came from. It's, uh, I believe it's by fine. For all you know, right. that's how science yeah. works. And uh, so, th so I said this in a setting where I thought everyone would know where it came from, but back then it wasn't known widely enough. Mm. And this person thought I, w I had come up with it. And, <laughs> and today uh, Vijay is quoting uh, it without knowing that. So. Yeah, 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 <laughs> exactly. So, so I, yeah. I was, I did never disabuse him of the notion. Yeah, yeah you, should, you shouldn't have disabused us. <laughs> <laughs> Try to spread the rumor that you are responsible. <laughs> Terrific. That's a good note to end on. Thanks to all of you for making Thank it. You. And we look Thank forward you. to having you soon again. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for having us.